0: Welcome. I decided to stay in the book of Daniel and finish out this first section of that book because there are some things in Daniel which point ahead in history to the big events surrounding Palm Sunday and then Easter which we'll celebrate next week. So because the Old Testament constantly points to the New Testament as the New Testament fulfills everything foretold in the Old Testament, That's why I decided to stay put today rather than to center all of my teaching today around Palm Sunday. So I appreciate the readings that Steve just gave us because it helps set the stage for something that we ought to be thinking about all week long as we approach Easter next week. Let me begin by suggesting that there are things in this world and sometimes people that are in a sense just the average common get it done utilitarian kinds of things and people. Daniel is one of those. He's the soccer minivan of the faith. (laughs) Let me give an example of one guy who considered himself like that. His name is Don Sutton. Max Lucado wrote about him in one of his books. He was a baseball pitcher who did some things that no other pitcher could do, but hardly anybody knows about him. Don pitched, get this, for five different teams over 23 seasons. In sports, 23 seasons is an eternity. (laughs) There was only one season in which he won more than 20 games. This particular player never pitched a no-hitter. And yet, (laughs) and this is a big and yet. On June 21st, 1986, pitcher Don Sutton became only the 30th pitcher in baseball history to win 300 games. Wow. In fact, his get the job done attitude ultimately earned him a total of 324 career wins. Don sadly just passed away this last January. Well, here's how Don described himself I am a grinder and a mechanic. I never considered myself flamboyant or exceptional, but all my life I found a way to get the job done. Oh man, did he ever. This guy had laser focus. He spent all those seasons redefining the term greatness, and yet most of us have never really remembered his name. In September of 1986, Inside Sports Magazine called Don Sutton the family sedan of baseball's men on the mound. Now today we'd probably call him the soccer minivan of pitchers rather than the family sedan, because I mean come on, Nobody uses the word sedan anymore, am I right? (laughs) Well, Don Sutton wasn't a fast-rising superstar like Denny McLean, who shot quickly up to stardom, but then faded just as fast. Well, we can find quite a few people in the Word of God in the Bible who fit this description as the soccer minivans of the Bible, and Daniel is one of them. When you look at his story, you can see right away that he wasn't trying to be flashy or spectacular. He didn't need the spotlight. He measured success by faithfulness and dependability. And Daniel faithfully served God, Yahweh, even though he was under the authority of three different pagan Babylonian kings and then finally into the very first part of a fourth king. So what did he have to show for it? (laughs) Not much. As we arrive at chapter 6, we find that Daniel is about 85 years old. What did he have to show for all of his work there? Almost nothing. It looks like the people of Babylon had remained unchanged. Kingdoms had come and gone, just like the prophetic dream in Daniel chapter 2 had predicted. But the kings in control were just as cruel and idolatrous as ever. God's chosen people, the Israelites, still in captivity even though Daniel kept getting promoted to higher and higher positions within the kingdom, can you just imagine how frustrating it must have felt for Daniel not to see any great thing happen because of his ministry there in Babylon? I can imagine it might've felt a little bit like Moses who wanted so badly to free God's people, and yet he felt very inadequate for the task. And even when the new king, Cyrus of uh, Persia, started allowing the Jews to go back to their home country, Israel, most of the Israelites chose to stay in Babylon. How come? They had grown accustomed to the lifestyle there. Those who did return to Jerusalem started to rebuild the temple, but they lost their focus and they lost sight of their priorities and they stopped the work. One of the other prophets, Haggai, chastised the Israelites for spending more time working on their own luxurious paneled houses and improving their lifestyles instead of finishing God's house. When you think about Daniel, the soccer minivan of the faith, we don't see a great revival sweeping through the captive country of Babylon under Daniel's ministry. There was no national repentance in Babylon like Jonah had seen when he preached a paltry little sermon and all of Nineveh repented. In fact, it appears from our perspective that very few people learned anything from Daniel. Doesn't appear that way to us anyway. Even though he was one of the wisest men in the country, he had great integrity, exercised tremendous faithfulness, his colleagues hated him, and even plotted against his life. But Daniel was one of those guys who didn't need the spotlight. He wasn't trying to exalt himself. He just wanted to be faithful to the God he knew to be faithful as well. Here's a brief outline of this chapter We must be faithful in our responsibilities, and we certainly see that Daniel models that for us. We have to be faithful in our prayer life, and we saw that before in an earlier chapter, and we're going to see it again here when he really needs prayer. And we can trust that God's going to handle our accusers justly and faithfully. God is always faithful in his justice, and he's just in his justice. So in Daniel chapter 6, We're going to build up to this by showing how Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 different provinces. It was a big territory. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province, kind of like governors of these provinces. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Note that that would mean each administrator would oversee the high officers of 40 provinces. I mean, that boggles the mind. That's an awful lot of administrative responsibility. So if Daniel is one of those three, he still has an enormous territory that he's responsible for. And then we see in verse 3 of Daniel 6, Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire." (laughs) Yowza. So he's not going to be over just one-third. It's going to be over the whole thing. Then verse four, then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they just couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy, because he's a soccer minivan. Now, we see that Darius the Mede is mentioned here. Darius is the same Darius mentioned in chapters 5, 6, 9, and 11 of this book of Daniel. He's the one we saw in Daniel 5.31, and we know from that passage that Darius the Mede was 62 years old when he conquered Babylon. A lot of good things can happen by people who are in their early 60s, Can I get an amen? And we know that he conquered Babylon in 539 BC, and we know that because of Babylonian records. Let me show you a little modern day map so you can see that part of the world. You can see that a lot of the things that would have been the Medo-Persian Empire is going to stretch all the way across Iran, Iraq, Syria, and all the way up into Turkey. So it was a huge territory. Let me show you what it would have looked like perhaps in Daniel's day. You see that? It's gigantic. Let me show you with my little arrow. There's Jerusalem way over here, not too terribly far from the Mediterranean Sea. And then you go up on the Damascus Road, and there's Syria, and there's Babylon over here. That would be the city of Babylon, but all of Babylon would have incorporated a lot of this territory here. And then you have Assyria in the north, Media, and Persia. So you see all this territory here. That would be the Medo-Persian Empire. Gigantic. And Daniel was about to be promoted over all of that, second only to the king himself. (laughs) Well, two Aryan tribes that attained the greatest importance were the Medes and the Persians. This all started a long time ago, about 1500 BC, but there were two of these people groups that rose to prominence, and these were these two primary tribes. The Medes dominated the Persians until Cyrus the Great, a Persian, conquered the Medes around 559 BC, so that starts to take us into Daniel's time. Then we're seeing Cyrus or Darius. We start to read about two different names here, and the question arises, well, which one is the one that Daniel is dealing with, and were they two different guys, and were they from different countries, what's going on here? Thank you for asking. We're about to clarify that. Well, uh, he gave Medes and the Persians equal power, this Cyrus the Great. He gave the Medes and Persians, equal power, so that foreigners spoke of either the Persians and the Medes, as we see in the book of Esther, or the Medes and the Persians, as we see in Daniel chapter 5. So you may say potato, and I may say potato. You may say Persians and Medes, and I may say Medes and Persians. But guess what? This information helps us answer the big question that arises when we hear about Cyrus the Great who conquered Babylon in 539 and then we read about this guy called Darius the Mede so who are these guys <laughs> it's the same guy it's the same fellow but just called differently depending on which culture you were naming him from the persians would call him cyrus now that we've answered that Daniel 6:28 actually correctly translated becomes this so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's easy to get them confused because it's the same man. (laughs) And the footnote in that verse in the New Living Translation actually puts it that way because they've done their research and they can see that there's a Bible dictionary that now has this information and so it's accepted by most contemporary scholars that it's the same guy. Well, Daniel is very faithful in his responsibilities. We see this in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 16. If you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. My parents used to quote this to me when they would send me out on my early jobs when I first started doing little bitty tasks, and they would say, if you're faithful doing the little things, you'll get promoted because you're going to show that you are responsible and that you can be trusted with more. And oh, man, did we ever see this with Daniel. That certainly kept happening to him with king after king in the Babylonian Empire and now in the Persian Empire. Well, he's faithful here because he was one of these three upper-level administrators ruling over these 120 satraps, or governors. They were like government representatives of the king, and they had a lot of power, let me tell you. And when you get powerful people who start to get threatened because somebody else is about to take over power, what happens to them? They get jealous. That was certainly going to happen here, and we can see the jealousy starting to boil to the surface in these other leaders when they found out that the king was going to put him in charge. So what are we looking at here? That's a crab bucket. And when people get jealous, they wanna take the other people around them down, even though that person may be climbing out and gonna better themselves or better the people around them. We see that in different countries. Some of the mission trips that we've been on, uh, some of our elders were there in Haiti and somebody there in Haiti said, we have this crab bucket mentality here in this country. The minute somebody starts to finally climb out of their difficult situation or circumstance, and they become to better themselves or get a better job, people try to take them down. They want them to come back down there where they are, because their basic mentality is if I can't have it, you shouldn't have it. I'm going to try to take it away from you. And that's exactly what we see, that crab bucket mentality with these satraps and Daniel. I saw that happen on one of my little part-time jobs. Back uh, when I was going to school, I held many little part-time jobs along the way. One of them was working for a company that installed closet doors. And so many tasks were quite menial. A lot of the time during my day, I would just walk around a table and hammer little rails on the sides of doors, ho hum. And a lot of people didn't take that job very seriously, but my parents had taught me, you need to do the best you can Because an honest day's wage deserves an honest day's work. So that was the mentality I took into my job, and I tried to set goals for myself and do the best I could. I tried to beat my own records on productivity to say, okay, I did 36 in the first four hours yesterday. I'm going to try to do 37 today, Ah, because it helped make the time go faster, and it just made the day more interesting if I could give myself some goals to shoot for. Well, it didn't take too long in that job before some of the guys started coming around and they started saying things like, hey man, son, you got to slow down. You're making the rest of us look lazy. And I thought, oh, I kind of thought maybe they were making themselves look lazy, but I didn't say that out loud. Forgive me for thinking it, but I did. And they said, the boss is gonna start looking for all of us to become productive if you keep up that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, well, isn't that sort of the idea? Aren't we going to make him more successful? And if he's more successful, won't he make us more successful? That kind of should be the way it works. But anyway, it's the crab bucket mentality. And that's what happened with these satraps because they had this big problem. They could not find a fault in Daniel. They couldn't find a reason to go rat him out because there was nothing to rat him out on. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So to quote that uh, wonderful theologian poet, Clive Wellington, They began to plot and they plotted a lot and their stomachs were churning and tied in a knot. They just couldn't shame him. They couldn't defame him. They thought, and they thought, "Bah! we can't even frame him. I know they exclaimed. we'll appeal to the king so that Daniel will fall as he does the right thing. (laughs) You gotta love that Clive Wellington. Well, Daniel found himself in great need of prayer. Let me tell you what, They arranged an audience before the king, and they buttered him up and played upon his pride. And that's why we need to start seeing how it's so important that all of us continue with a daily prayer life. This uninterrupted conversation of prayer with the Lord so that we always have access to him because he's always accessible. And this is where we start to pick up as well. So let's read verses 5 through 23. So they concluded, these satraps, Our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Mm -hmm. They figured him out, they got his number. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius, butter up, butter up, butter up. We're all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the din of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. And so, (laughs) King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and hid in a closet so nobody could tell he was praying. Is that what your translation says? Oh, wait a minute. Oh yeah, there we go. No, my translation doesn't say that either. It says he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. And he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. In other words, what did Daniel do? He was a soccer minivan of the faith. He was steadfast, he got the job done, he kept doing the right thing every day, and he kept doing that with his prayer life as well, no matter what the consequences might be, because that is a part of his commitment to Yahweh. And then the officials went together to Daniel's house, gee, I wonder why they would have done that, and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king, little tattletales, and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone divine or human except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians. It can't be revoked. And then they told the king, well, that man, notice how they try to dehumanize him. That man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah is ignoring you and your law. Always putting it right back to the king's pride. He still prays to his God three times a day. Na, 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 na. And hearing this, the king was was deeply troubled. He tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. And in the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. In other words, the clock is ticking, O king. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Isn't that something? Sounds like the king is actually kind of praying or trying to put some faith in Daniel's God hoping that Daniel's God will save him. So I want you to listen to this next passage and see if it strikes a nerve, something that might sound familiar. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Think ahead to what we're gonna be celebrating just next week. A stone brought to cover the den or the cave or the tomb. Uh Aha. Perhaps another foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal, as they would, and the seals of his nobles, so that no one could rescue Daniel. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and could not sleep all that night. Wow. Pretty incredible, isn't it? That this king is more distraught than so many other people. Why would that be? Because clearly he has found Daniel to be indispensable and trustworthy. And he sees that the character of Daniel is so good that he hates that his own law is causing such distress. Then in verse 19, very early the next morning, also starts to sound a lot like what we're going to be seeing next week. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to Not the tomb, but the lion's den. Probably could have become a tomb had the lions devoured Daniel. But let's keep reading. Verse 20, when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. Isn't that diplomatic? The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Pretty incredible story. Then we can find that we can trust God to be faithful in handling our accusers. Daniel, who was constantly trying to do the right thing, even though it may have cost him his life, stayed true to Yahweh. And he had not wronged his king either, and God lifted him up. That sounded like a foreshadowing again. Those who humbled themselves would be exalted, and just as Christ is lifted up, others are drawn to him. People are drawn to the character of Christ, and it's foreshadowed in this person of faith in Daniel. Then we see in this third part of this chapter, we must trust God to handle our accusers. It's not ours to wreak havoc on them and to have vengeance, as we saw in our GE GE this morning, when David started to become angry, and then we found out that his anger subsided when somebody was wise and diplomatic and came and did the right thing, and it de-escalated that situation. Really good GE, by the way. Then we pick it up in verse 24. And then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. The lions leapt on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Now, I have to push the pause button and talk about this for just a moment. It was very common in this tribal and somewhat barbaric culture in the Middle East for whole households to be punished. Sometimes when pharaohs in Egypt would die, their concubines and wives would be buried with them. We see now in archaeology that this was quite common in different people groups in that part of the world at this ancient time. In the New Testament there was a Philippian jailer who was saved because Paul decided not to run away when they had a great earthquake and the doors opened. And it says that that Philippian jailer was saved, and he and his whole household were baptized that day. There was this sort of federal headship, and everybody who was under the master's care was a part of that entity, and they treated that entity as one, one unit. But even though it seems very barbaric, and I think it is, I think it's awful, because it seems like there would have been innocent people dying, and yet we understand that there are some things, particularly in the Old Testament, that used to think the father's sin is visited upon the sons in the next generations. That was a part of the Old Testament concept. And Jeremiah foretold of a change to that arrangement, however. It says in Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 29, in those days people will no longer say, and this was a, a saying back then that they were using to talk about this covering of an entire oikos in the Greek which would mean household. In those days people will no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. He's saying instead of being lumped together as one people group who are punished together, like the children of Israel who became a picture of what was going to be happening later, All that was done to provide a picture for us looking ahead to what Jesus would change when he ushered in the new covenant. Then it says in verse 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they, meaning collectively, all of Israel, broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, because he referred to them as being an adulteress. Then we say in verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time when the new covenant is established, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So we can see that even though there was this horrible situation where there were wives and husbands and children thrown into the lion's den, all that was going to change. Jesus was going to change everything. I'm very grateful that he's going to do that. Then we pick it up again in verse 25 of Daniel 6. And then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the known world. And as you saw by the map, that was a lot of people. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever his kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end, and this is written out in poetic style so it's almost like a song. He rescues and saves his people he performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth, he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Sounds pretty similar to one of the verses that Steve read in our worship exhortation, which actually became a song which our praise team sings very often. They were extolling the benefits of this God who can rescue his, uh, his beloved children who have put him first in their lives. And so the last verse there, verse 28, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, or as we talked about the correct translation, The reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Pretty amazing chapter in this book, is it not? Mm -hmm. So the question, though, is are we tempted to bend the knee and pay homage or respect to people who aren't the God we say we serve? I think we are. I think it's very easy for us to start trying to put other things or other people in the place of God, even though we might not recognize it at first. It's so easy for us to be distracted and to put our priorities elsewhere. Where are we praying? Where do we place our trust when we're beseeching God? We know that prayer is an act of trust. When we ask for something or offer thanks, we're exhibiting trust in the object of our prayer. In Daniel's case, the object of his worship was Yahweh, God, the the creator of heaven and earth, the God of the Israelites. And now for us, the God we serve because of what Jesus did for us, because Jesus was the fulfillment of all that came through the nation of Israel so that they could bless every nation, including the Gentiles. He's the one who came, this Jesus incarnate as God, the son to demonstrate his great love to us, the crowning achievement of his creation, people, mankind. He's the one whose loving kindness persists day after day because his loving kindness endures forever. So in what or in whom do we place our trust? Do we place our trust in human leaders? Do we appeal to them to right the wrongs in the world and bring about healing justice? If so, we're placing our trust in the wrong Messiah. There's only one true Messiah and that's Jesus Christ. We should use whatever influence we have, albeit limited in our cases, we feel very uh, limited in our ability to influence our government at times, but we can vote and we can contact our representatives, congressmen and House of Representatives, to elect these officials that we think will do the best job. We can certainly do that, but we've seen throughout history that human leaders are not going to be completely trustworthy, not the way Jesus Christ is trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Daniel's story shows us how prayer as an act of trust can be at times a wrestling match. I'm sure that as he sat or knelt in his window, open window, so that everybody could have easily looked up from the street and seen him doing his prayers three times a day, that he must have been wrestling in his spirit. Now it doesn't say that. I'm just gauging from the fact that I'm a human being. And I know that sometimes when I've really been wrestling through a prayer uh, situation with God, it is a wrestling match. And probably the thing I'm wrestling with most is my own pride and human sinful tendencies. (laughs) Sometimes I would rather cave or give in to fear, or decide to try to take matters into my own hands, or perhaps trust in something else, rather than saying, God, I know you know what's best for me in this situation. I really want to try to be spared from it, but if I can't be spared from it, at least show up with me in the den." And he does. He definitely does. And yet, in this story, we see a reversal of perspective, and it has to do with the king. Daniel continued trusting in God, Even though he likely struggled through his prayers, I'm guessing he did, after he learned about that law that the king had passed, but it was the king who had the real change of heart. That I find incredible. Of course, we've seen parallels to this in other chapters and in other times, like when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into that fiery furnace. The king had a change of heart, albeit temporary, but he had a change of heart as well. Well, Daniel had so impressed the king that he didn't even realize the unintended consequence of his actions as he was swayed by the satraps, or the governors, who convinced him to pass that law about praying to him. He's the one who wrestled with the difficult situation that, that he had caused because of his own pride. He's the one who couldn't sleep all night long because he had thrown Daniel into the lion's den and shut the door. So he was actually the one probably praying in this wrestling match all night long. He fasted. He couldn't even eat or have any entertainment because that was the only thing on his mind because Daniel had so impressed him. So let me ask, are you trusting in God and praying so regularly that other people who are looking in at your life would see what this king saw in Daniel? Do others see your persistent acts of faith like Daniel had changed the heart of a king because of his actions? Would their conscience be stricken if they saw you publicly humiliated for doing the right thing? Would people stay awake all night worrying about you if you got arrested for exercising your religious conscience? Would they start to have a change of heart about what they thought about God because they saw how you placed your hope in God? That's what I think we're supposed to be doing. I think we're supposed to be living as Daniel lived so that others can clearly see that there's a faith being lived out in living color right before their eyes. I know somebody who persisted in doing the right thing, and yet he was arrested for his convictions. We're going to celebrate his resurrection next week. Yes, he did the right thing. And there were some who were standing around, including a particular guard, a soldier who saw all the events of that day. And as Jesus hung on the cross and he witnessed these crazy events, he said, surely he is the son of God. God will certainly be manifest through us at times through the wrestling matches of our prayer as we choose to do the right thing, even though we would like for God to take this trial away from us. There were long-term outcomes from Daniel's life. Yes, he couldn't see much in the way of a huge ministry or a great revival sweeping through Babylon or Persia or the Medo-Persian Empire. Yes, there was probably not much visibly to show for his action. And yet we can see some incredibly long-term outcomes from Daniel's life. Isaiah was right, Jeremiah was right, Habakkuk was right. The Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, as was predicted by these prophets, and they carried off many captives, including Daniel, to Babylon. All that was true. It all came to pass. Everything about Daniel's life in Babylonia helps reveal God's plan for the world to us. The thing is, we can look ahead in history and see how it all played out. Daniel couldn't, and yet he was faithful anyway. Are we willing to do the thing God asks us to do, even if there's no tangible, visible evidence that what we did succeeded? If we're willing to wait until he shows us in heaven the results of our efforts? That's tough. And yet that's the way we're supposed to live with our faith. Well, God's plan included pointing ahead to Palm Sunday and to Easter. God displays his wisdom and sovereignty throughout Daniel's ministry and throughout this entire book. Hindsight shows us that Daniel's faithfulness resulted in teachings that continue to inspire us. In fact, Daniel's life is inspiring us today. Hopefully, it will provide hope to us that we can stay steadfast in trusting in God, even though it seems like many of the people in the world are turning completely against what we believe in. We're fast becoming oppressed, and a minority in our own country, because there are some people who think that what we're talking about is hateful, even though we think we're loving, by trying to show that God loves them enough to die in their place. Daniel's story points ahead to the promised Messiah, whose kingdom will never end, and we can see time and again throughout all these prophecies that God knew exactly what he was doing. So can we keep doing the right things, even though we feel oppressed, even though we feel improperly treated by people who don't understand that we're trying to be compassionate and truthful by standing for what God stands for? Well, I pray that we will. And I pray that we'll continue to remind ourselves through scriptures that we can do that because we can trust in the same God that Daniel trusted in. Let's pray together. Father, there's a time today that seems to be calling out Christians and it's calling us out to be faithful. We're being called out by you to live our lives with such faithfulness and commitment to you that others can see our commitment and faithfulness. We need to live it out daily to talk about it openly, to be compassionate and yet truthful and not to water down anything about the good gospel, that truth of the faith that we believe in. Father, I pray that they will see in our lives such compassion for them that if we become improperly treated in any way, it would cause other people to say, that's not fair. That person has been living for God and they're committed to him and they're faithful to him. We should treat them fairly. I pray that we will be stand up people and that we'll stand firmly on the rock of our salvation, who is Jesus Christ, in whose name we can trust because of the resurrection that we're gonna celebrate next week. And I pray it in Jesus' name and in his authority